Today's reading is from Acts 13, verses 13 through 52. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian, Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness, and he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled for 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of John, Jesus, oh, sorry, before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I am not the one you are looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their leaders did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate, to have him executed. When they carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross, laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us his children by raising up Jesus As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son. Today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessing promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. Now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors, and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish. For I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, 
the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and the devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We have to speak the word of God to you first. Since you rejected it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. And the disciples, then the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. This is God's word. Our great God and Father, we have sung already that you are the one who makes promises and they never change. You are the one who makes promises and they're always fulfilled and come true. And so, Father, as we look now and consider at length the fact that for centuries, for millennia, you made promises about what Jesus would do when he came... All those promises are fulfilled in him. Would that be of great encouragement to us this morning, we ask? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, actually, it's quite a long reading, but it's a fairly simple point that Jesus fulfills all the promises of the Old Testament. That's kind of it. Um, So there you go, Uh, in one sense. um, That is Paul's main point. All these many, many promises that are made for, however you want to count it, 2,000 years, if you go back to Abraham, of promises made about one who would come, they're all fulfilled in Jesus. Now, of course, in one sense, um, in in modern culture, is a fairly common theme that comes up in in all sorts of stories that get told, uh, a prophecy of one who would come. So King Arthur in the sort of Arthurian legends or the sword in the stone, the one who rules over, the one who should rule over the king of the kingdom of England will draw Excalibur from this stone. One will come, one will come. Many will try, but one will come. And then uh, off he arrives, Arthur, and pulls it. Ta-da! Uh, here he is. Or more modern fables, uh, the Matrix series. Um, could he be the one? Are you the one? I don't think I'm the one. He is the one. He is the one. And um, because there's all these prophecies about one who will come and defeat uh, the machines or whatever um, and overturn the matrix. This is a fairly common theme. Or you like your Harry Potters, of course, you get mad uh, Sybil Trelawney who has a prophecy that in late July 1980, one will be born with the power to defeat the Dark Lord. And... uh, Whatever it is, two months later, so not that much of a prophecy. Ta-da! Uh, along comes uh, uh, Harry, and uh, I guess you have to wait 18 years until, ta-da! Uh, he defeats uh, Voldemort. Prophecy, one will come. They will do this. All right. well, it's a fairly common narrative in, uh, in all sorts of stories, but in one sense, they're just mere echoes of the fact that you turn to the Scriptures and 
for thousands of years, there are prophecies about one who would come. And Jesus fulfills them. Now, that is, of course, I mean, that is unique in, in history. Uh, so don't get confused, of course. Uh, Harry Potter and um, whatever his name is, Neo and uh, uh, Arthur, legends, myths, stories created. But if you turn to the realm of history, I mean, fact, um, there aren't any characters who've strode the pages of history that get that sort of drum roll to them. So I don't know who you want to think of. Napoleon sort of redrew the map of Europe 200 years ago, but he pops out of nowhere. Well, obviously from his mother. But... Um, uh, <laughs> Uh, but you, there's no drum roll. There's going to be a man who comes uh, uh, born on Sicily. and No, not Sicily. Where he's born. It was Sicily. Anyway. Um, and he's going to, you know, there's no drum roll. There's no build-up that Napoleon's going to do this. Thank you, Corsica. I knew it wasn't Sicily. I said that. I think, no, that's not right. Corsica, thank you. Um, that's all right. My degree was only in history. The... Um, uh, I have lost the plot now. Note to self, write these things down. Um, or you take other, other Martin Luther, 500 pages, 500 pages, 500 years ago, completely turns Europe again on its head. But there's no drum roll. A monk will come from Wittenberg drinking beer and teaching the word of God. There's no drum roll. There's no build-up. There's no prophecy of these characters coming. They just burst into history. In the religious sphere, there are no prophecies that there's going to be a bloke called Muhammad who's going to write a book called the Quran. There's no prophecies about Buddha, who's going to come up with a theory of how you reach enlightenment. There's no, there's no predictions of these characters coming. They just emerge. So in that sense, Jesus Christ is unique. Hundreds, thousands of years, one will come. This is what he'll look like. This is where he'll be born. This is what he'll do. And he fulfills these promises. And that is the main point of uh, Paul's sermon here in this synagogue in uh, the city of Pisidian Antioch to his Jewish audience. Jesus is the long-expected saviour they've been waiting for. Now, we are a different audience today. We are not, broadly, largely speaking, a Jewish audience who know our Old Testaments very, very well and who are expecting uh, some messianic figure to come. That's not kind of where we find ourselves in history. And yet the, the, the main idea of the sermon, you can trust this man because he fulfills centuries, decades of history. That's true. That's a good reason to trust him. That remains the case. If you're joining us then, we're in this uh, book of Acts. Uh, the, the main purpose, Lucas told us, is to... He's written this whole book so that we might have certainty of the truth of the Christian faith. And here in chapters 13 and 14, uh, the, the main character becomes Paul. Paul and Barnabas, they're on their first missionary uh, journey. It took about two years. We've got this map. Uh, this is where they travel uh, all through... Um, there we go. Uh, the, 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 the red dots are the main places they, they, they visit... Uh, as they go through uh, Cyprus and into the mainland and, and round and back again. But really, in the, in the journey, only three stories are told. Luke chooses to recount three incidents. We looked at one last time, which was the opposition uh, in Paphos, uh, great hostility there. We look at this incident, which is, what would you describe it, a mixed response uh, from the Jewish synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. 
And uh, next time in history, we'll look at Paul's first sermon to a non-Jewish Gentile audience. This is the only, this is Paul's first sermon that gets recorded. It's the only sermon of his that's recorded in the book of Acts to a Jewish audience. But wherever he went, he preached to the Jews first uh, and then Gentiles. So it is a sort of uh, um, an example. This is the sort of thing that he would have preached uh, everywhere that he went. As I say, though, it is really a, a, a sermon, a speech designed to explain the message of Jesus to a Jewish audience who were waiting for a Messiah. That isn't really us. So actually what I want to do is try and push through the main part of the speech fairly quickly in order to get to the implications, which were true for them and them, them and us. Uh, but let me just show you again. The, the, the idea is fulfillment. So uh, verse 23, after a long description of the Old Testament, Paul is going to say, verse 23, from this man, David's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. Verse 27, the people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets read every Sabbath. Verse 29, when they'd carried out all that was written about him, Verse 32, we tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, his children. In very simple terms, the Bible, two halves. Old Testament, promises. New Testament, completed. Fulfillment. Kind of how it works. Very briefly then, uh, let's uh, turn to, uh, let me skim over the first part of the text. So here's Paul then, and um, they arrive, verse 14, Paul and Barnabas, they're on their travels. They go to Pisidian Antioch. That's gone to a different Antioch uh, uh, from the one in Syria. But uh, on the Sabbath, they enter the synagogue and sat down, and they get a polite response. As they'd always be in the synagogue, after the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them and said, Brothers, uh, well, Paul, you're a rabbi. If you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Uh, And Paul says, I certainly will. Uh, Verse 16, uh, thank you very much. And off he speeches. And really what you get in verses, well, what does he say? Verse 16, standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, fellow Israelites, and you Gentiles who worship God, so there's a mixture there in the synagogue, listen, listen to me. And really verses 17 to 23, everyone would have agreed with. It's just an overview of the Bible in the Old Testament. The emphasis on God did this, God did this, God did this, God did this. He's the the author of history. And everyone would have agreed with everything that Paul said in verses 17 to 22. Let me pick it up from verse 22, though. After removing Saul, he, God, made David their king. God testified against concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. And from this man, then, David's descendants... God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he'd promised. Now, that's the point of where there's disagreement. So they're all nodding, yes, that's our history, that's our history, that's our history. And from David came Jesus Christ, who's the Savior you've all been waiting for. And then Paul is going to speak about Jesus. And and two things in particular, it seems to me, get emphasized. There's fulfillment of his death. And fulfillment of his resurrection. Those two get highlighted. Fulfillment of his death and fulfillment of his resurrection. Let me take those two in turn. So uh, verse 26. 
You can tell there's a new section being started because he addresses the people again. He'd addressed them in verse 16, uh, brothers and sisters, here again, fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles. So he'd said, verse 16, listen up, and he's basically saying the same here again. It is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. There's great irony here in verse 27. Uh, the, The rulers of Jerusalem, they didn't recognize that Jesus was the prophet, the Messiah promised in the Old Testament, and so they killed him. But in doing that, they fulfilled the promises of the Old Testament that the Messiah, when he came, would be killed. Uh, by those who opposed him. So there's a certain irony to it. Uh, Which prophets is he talking about? Well, there are numerous places you can go. Let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, Isaiah 53 is obviously a prominent one. The prophet Isaiah declared that in the future there'd be one. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Well, that, that, there's a clear prophecy that one would die as a savior you get this very strong reference in verse 29 when they carried out all that was written about him the promised savior they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb well that's a kind translation for you and me a a cross the word cross it's tree that's always what it is in the book of acts there are two different words in greek In the book of Acts, the word cross never appears, actually. Three times it's spoken of. And whenever it gets translated cross, it's always the word tree. Jesus was hung upon a tree. He died upon a tree. In um, chapter 5, verse 30, 10, verse 39, and the two up to before now. The reason being because they're trying to say that this Messiah was killed upon a tree. And you know what that means. Because that's fulfilling another promise of Deuteronomy 21, 22. The Lord would declare, or had declared, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he's put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. A hanged man is cursed by God. So when there's this repeated reference in the book of Acts, this Jesus, he died upon a tree, he died upon a tree, Everyone with any knowledge of the Old Testament is thinking that means he's died to cursed. But as Paul says, he he was innocent. Verse 28, there's no ground for a death sentence. He is an innocent man, and yet he is cursed by hanging upon a tree. Paul is just saying, do you, do you see this man, all these promises, here's just a couple of examples, these promises of the Old Testament, they all land on Jesus. You, know, you and I now, we're seeing it in a moment, we're seeing it at the end of the, the service, but the classic Advent hymn of Charles Wesley, come, come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people through. Yeah, long expected, 2,000 years Certainly over a hundred in the Old Testament promises that this one would come. Here he is. There's fulfillment of his death. And fulfillment of his resurrection is the other thing that Paul really emphasizes. uh, Verses 30 to 37. 
All these are Old Testament thing, uh, uh, references he now actually quotes. Verse 30. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They're now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children. How has he done that? By raising Jesus. Let me give you some examples of Old Testament promises fulfilled, he says. So, as is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I've become your father. You can go back and read Psalm 2 in the Old Testament. It's the enthronement psalm. Whenever any, th- uh, any king was enthroned uh, in Jerusalem in the Old Testament, Psalm 2 would be read. It is a promise that God would, a king descended from David, would have many enemies, but that the Lord would raise him up and he'd triumph over his enemies. And now Jesus is risen and enthroned in heaven. So you have promise, fulfillment, tick. That's his point. Or verse 34, there's this reference, um, uh, God raised him from the dead so that he'll never be subject to decay. As it gets quoted, verse 35, this is Psalm 16. You'll never let your Holy One, the promised Savior, see decay. Verse 36, now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed, but the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Again, Paul is saying, you know, David had this promise that the the God's Messiah would never rot in a tomb. Well, it's not David, is it? Because he's rotting in a tomb. You can go and visit David's tomb in Jerusalem. It's about Jesus. There's a promise that God's Messiah would be raised from the dead. It's fulfilled in Jesus. Tick. Once again. And in the middle of them, in in verse 34, there's another little quote from Isaiah 55. As God has said, I will give you, plural, all of God's people, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. Well, that's now available through Jesus. The promise of eternal life, promise of resurrection for all. Promise, fulfillment, tick. Now, you and I, we probably know our Bibles less well, our Old Testaments less well than the Jewish audience in Pisidian Antioch. And you could easily think, okay, so what? Well, for you and me, I think the point is still there, that it should give us confidence. This Jesus, there is no one like him in the whole of human history that has a two millennia of promises saying he'll come and he comes and he fulfills them he is the central figure of history and you can trust him if you forgive me let me give you a contemporary but but horrible illustration sometimes people will say to me um i'll ask them a question have you ever thought about have you ever thought about the claims of jesus christ you know he makes extraordinary claims about eternity and where you spend it. You need to at least engage with them because the most important decision you'll make in your life. And I think the most common thing that people will say back is, well, I don't know. Uh, there's so many ideas about Jesus. I don't even know where to start. You know, some people say he's not made up. Some he's made up. Some people say, you know, I, you know, it's just too confusing. I haven't got the time to look into that. To which you ought to say, but it's not that confusing. Because he was predicted for 2,000 years. Just, just scratch the surface and do a little bit of research. So look, compare it to this. 
Brexit, forgive me, Brexit. But um, I think the most common attitude in the UK, probably up and down the land, is, well, I don't know. Because uh, there's a number of people saying, oh, hurrah, hurrah, uh, we will be liberated from those vicious, nasty people in Brussels, and of course, plenty of others saying, disaster, uh, it'll be a disaster. And I, you know, I'm not making any comment on that, wherever you lie on, on that spectrum, but it's fairly polarized, and most people in the middle are saying, oh, just get on with it, just get on with it, because it's just so boring. Um, just get on with it and get it done. And will it be better, will it be worse? I don't know, I just don't like him, so I voted against him. I don't understand the issues, that's kind of where lots of people are coming from. But imagine experiment. Imagine that there were hundreds of prophecies about Brexit going back 2,000 years. Imagine you could read, not 2,000 years, but William the Conqueror, and there are in the Doomsday Book, you know, that he put together, and there are really clear quotes in there. And William the Conqueror says, one day the United Kingdom, whatever that is, will... Um, will break away from Europe, whatever that is, and, um, and a woman will be on the throne. And you must trust her. And you think, oh, that's interesting. And you read a little bit further, and there's another prophecy from, you know, 100 years later that says, when the United Kingdom, whatever that is, uh, is, uh, is divided, trust the woman from Maidenhead. And God, that's extraordinary. And then another 75 years later, you, you find another prophecy in, in, in British history. There will come a time when Britain is divided down the middle. Do not trust the men of Eton and Oxford who delight to speak Latin. <laughs> and you think, wow, there's a prophecy from the year, whatever it is, from the Magna Carta. It's written in the Magna Carta, say. It's 1215, if I got that one right. The, um, I think I'm okay. Uh, it's written in the Magna Carta. Don't trust the men from Eton Oxford, who speak Latin, and everyone says, what's Eton? We don't even know what that is. But now we read and think, Eton, Oxford, Latin. It's like Boris. It's like Jacob Rees-Mogg. They're all the same. And you think, wow, these, I mean, it's obvious what we should do. If you've got a hundred prophecies along these lines, and look, um, if, if you feel the other way about Brexit, just mentally flip them around and trust the Oxford and not the woman from Maidenhead. Okay, I'm not making a political point. But imagine you've got all these centuries of prophecies telling you what to do, telling you what you should think. It's not really good enough to say, well, I don't know, it's all a bit complicated. Some people say this and some people say that. I don't know what to do. I just want it over. It's obvious what you should do. You've been told for a thousand years. So what do you have in the scriptures? Oh, I don't know what to make of Jesus. It's all very complicated. Is he, is he who he is? I don't know. You've got 2,000 years of prophecies telling you that this man would come where he'd be born, what he would do, what he'd be like. 2,000 years. And they all land on Jesus. You have very good reason to trust him. He is the promised saviour. Trust him. That is the big idea that Paul wants to persuade them of, persuade us of. If you're a Christian here this morning, you are not foolish for trusting him. You have the logic of history behind you. If you're not here as a Christian, do, do you see, here's something you've got to engage with. 
The promises of the Old Testament, they're fulfilled in Jesus, fulfilled in his death, fulfilled in his resurrection. Let me run you through four implications uh, of uh, what this means. Uh, They're the ones that uh, Paul gives, uh, and they still apply. Four implications. Here's the first. Verse 38, he brings forgiveness of sins. Verse 38. Paul is uh, clearly moving to application here because, again, he addresses them directly. So again, verse 16, uh, brothers and sisters, verse 26, fellow children of Abraham, verse 38, my friends. Verse 38, therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. There's the first implication. He brings forgiveness of sins. In one sense, for, for them then and for us, here's the main payoff, the main application of the sermon, forgiveness of sins. Very simply, through Jesus to you. It's a lovely little phrase. Through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins to you. Through Jesus to you. Christianity is very simple. Forgiveness for all you've done wrong, through Jesus to you. Sometimes people want to bury the Christian faith beneath all sorts of activities and festivals and stuff. It's very simple. For those of you still at school, sometimes you know, that's how Christianity will get taught. You know, all religions, they have a, 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 an important place and they have certain festivals and, and, and they have certain rituals and, and they all have some sort of book. And, and the, it's very simple Christianity. Don't, don't let it get buried. Forgiveness of sins from Jesus to you. Simple. Forgiveness. On Thursday night, it was, uh, it was with a gang here at church on Thursday night, and we were looking at the cross in, in, in some detail, and a common question was asked, often people ask it, why, why couldn't God just forgive? Why did Jesus have to die? Why did God himself have to come down and die as our substitute? It seems a little OTT. Why didn't he just say, oh, you screwed up, I forgive you? Because that's what humans do. We just forgive. Yeah, but as I have to point out, there is always a cost to forgiveness. There's always a cost. So I was reminded recently, uh, occasionally I went and visited my mother and uh, did some uh, jobs around the house and did some uh, stuff in the garden and uh, came back in and she had baked a cake. Terrific. That was my reward. So uh, I went in and uh, cut myself a slice and uh, it was a very good cake. Uh, I cut myself another slice uh, it was a very good cake. And uh, uh, then she uh, came down, downstairs and entered the kitchen and uh, with mild alarm said, why have you eaten Susan's birthday cake? <laughs> I said, I've only had a slither. She had a quarter is not a slither by anyone's maths. <laughs> you stupid child. Which no one enjoys in their 40s being referred to uh, in, in that sort of way. Uh, I said, so sorry. Rolled her eyes. Oh, it's all right. I've got a bit of time. I'll let you off. But, and so she forgave me, which is good of her. No, it's not that big a deal, but there is a cost. Because then was required a visit to the shops. Some money spent on new ingredients. And then back home, there was time and hassle of baking again. So there's forgiveness, but there is a cost to it. All I had done was eat a little bit of cake. So the forgiveness required is not that dramatic, although I wasn't actually having to do the baking, etc., etc. But 
when we have sinned against the Lord, that is a big deal, the one who made us. When we say to him, we are in charge and I want to run life my way and I'm not that interested in you, that is a big deal. Forgiveness required is more extensive. It's costly. There's always a cost of forgiveness. So when Jesus comes down and dies upon the cross, he pays the cost. He takes curse of sin that we should pay. There's always a cost. There's the first thing. Forgiveness of sins from Jesus to you, uh, verse 38. Uh, More briefly, 39, he brings justification. Verse 39, through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. A justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Jesus brings justification. Not just sins removed, but a positive verdict upon our lives. Forgiveness, I guess, could be begrudging. (sighs) I forgive you, but I'm annoyed with you. Scram, go away, get out of my sight, but I do forgive you. Forgiveness can be begrudging, but justification is not that. It is, I forgive you and I love you. Jesus has taken upon himself the curse of sin and you receive upon yourself his blessing. That's the marvelous exchange. And Paul says you, you could never have got the confidence that God loves you from the Old Testament. You never get that confidence from the law of Moses. But the Christian knows that, not just forgiveness, but God's promise, I will love you whatever you do. I will take you to heaven whatever you do. You will be in my family whatever you do. Justification. The uh, third one, uh, there is, by contrast, judgment for scoffers. Verses 40 to 46. It's not automatic. You do have to trust Jesus if you want forgiveness of sins and justification. So Paul says, look, take care, verse 40, take care what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wander and perish. I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. Uh, Don't scoff like Habakkuk predicted that some would scoff, says Paul, because then you never receive the benefits of belonging to Jesus, trusting in him. Barely a week goes by in our media without some scoffing of the claims of the Christian faith generally by people who've never looked at the logic of history that says you really ought to believe in this guy. The drum roll for his arrival was 2,000 years long. But there'll always be some who scoff. And for Paul's audience there in Pisidian Antioch, there's a mixed response. Verse 42, as Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. We want more. Verse 43, when the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them, and urged them to continue in the grace of God. So some have become believers, so they need to continue in it. But verse 44, on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But verse 45, when some of the Jewish leaders, presumably, when the Jews saw the crowds, they're filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Oh, look, he'll judge scoffers, and there'll always be opposition. Be ready for that. So look, look, there's forgiveness of sins, verse 38. He'll bring justification, verse 39. He will judge scoffers, 40 to 46. But in the end, verse 47, Jesus is the light we need. He's the light that we need. Verse 46, let me pick it up. Since you rejected and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. 
For this is what the Lord commanded us. I've made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. Paul takes a prophecy about Jesus from Isaiah. Isaiah 49, I've made you a light for the Gentiles. Promise about Jesus. Simeon in Luke 2 says it's about Jesus. And Paul says, but it's true of me and Barnabas now. Because as we take the message of Jesus to a world, lights come on. And when we proclaim who Jesus is, and he's the fulfillment of prophecies, lights come on for people. Lights come on. And so we'll keep on doing that. There is no other message, no other person who can bring that sort of light. There's no one else in world history who has centuries of prophecies about them before they come. Jesus is the long-expected, long-predicted, long-prophesied saviour. You're very sensible <laughs> to believe in him, if I could put it in such prosaic terms. You are following the logic of history. You're just observing what the world has said will happen. There are compelling reasons to come to him, to keep trusting in him. So do so. He is the long-promised saviour. Let's pray together. Our great God and Saviour, we thank and praise you that the, your scriptures are very clear. Putting our trust in Jesus Christ is not a, a leap of faith. It's not a leap in the dark. It is trusting thousands of years of history which prophesy that he would come. And Father, so would we, one sense, just understand the logic of the scriptures, of promises and their fulfillment in Jesus, that there is no real explanation for how this man could have been predicted for centuries before he came. There is no other figure of history that has that behind them. So, Father, would we trust him and in trusting him know the wonderful joy of the forgiveness of sins, of justification, your permanent delight and approval upon us? And would we indeed be those who speak of him? so others can know this light come on. Father, we thank you for him in Jesus' name. Amen.